0: Welcome to Amazon Legends, where we have real stories about making it
1: big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became power sellers, also providers specializing in helping sellers, aggregators that acquire sellers, and former Amazonians will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here is your host, Nick Urasin.
0: Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today. Is a former Amazonian, so I hardly have both former Amazonian and someone who <laughs> specializes in something specific. And this is what we had today. So he's a former Amazonian, and then started an agency. But today he's the founder of Data Driven, which is a software platform that provides actionable intelligence for Amazon sellers to drive growth. And also, his company happens to be the newest acquisition of Carbon6, which is a family of uh, Amazon tools and suite of services uh, pl- platform. So when he's not working, he likes all things to do with snow, snowboarding, mm-hmm. snowmobiling, and uh, and others. So with that, everybody, meet my guest, Nater Youngchild. Welcome to the show, Nater.
1: Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here.
0: Oh, uh, I'm I'd love to have former Amazonians because they tend to be very smart <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and very knowledgeable. And um, But uh, we're going to get into it. But all things snow, where is that coming from?
1: Oh, interesting. Well, I live in a mountain town now, so it's it's right outside these windows. Uh, so it's constantly around me. But how I ended up here, um, I married a Canadian. Um, most of your choices of where to live in Canada include a lot of snow. Good thing is I love it. I, I've been a backcountry uh, free ride snowboard coach for over 10 years. Um, I, I was um, involved in snowboarding, um, getting into a competitive level, decided to go a different path in life. Uh, but so it's been in my life um, ever since then. And um, any true ski bum will tell you, you know, no matter what you do with your day life, a ski bum, a ski bum, a ski bum. I just do it a little bit differently with, with, uh, digital entrepreneurship
0: cool cool okay so what is actionable intelligence that drives growth that's what your platform provides but what is it tell us what that is
1: very simple it's recommendations of what to do every single day day in day out powered by data
0: okay so data driven uh, recommendations exactly so um, give us some examples of these recommendations. What, what, what do they look like?
1: Yeah, some are, some are sophisticated, some are simple. Simple ones might be, you know, you have three images on a detail page and we want you to have six or seven, So we will tell you to add a few more. Um, more complicated ones might be uh, the system identifies within a variation. You have a large variance of conversion rates, within your ASINs in a variation, potentially one of those ASINs is cannibalizing the potential success of other, um, whether it's colors or sizes in that variation. And it might make sense to break apart that variation. So the cannibalizing ASIN can live on its own and the other ones don't have that cannibalizing activity. So the, the, the range of uh, recommendations, just like any operator in the Amazon business knows, your day often can consist of very simple activities and very complicated activities. Um data driven is finding um your opportunities to grow on Amazon and is 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 not um doesn't discriminate against all complicated or all simple or a variation of both. Um it, it tries to call out the recommendations of what it sees in the data as your biggest opportunity right now.
0: Yeah. So these recommendations. Uh, i'm assuming you know they are not all equal and as you suggested some of them are simple some of them are more complicated however they they tend to be about different things right so if you were to kind of separate these uh, into different areas of expertise so to speak uh, because in every in every uh, company you have teams right teams have different roles and then each role has different responsibilities so uh How can you go about these recommendations in the same way where you group them? What would those groups be?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I I couldn't agree with your your premise there more. Um, We found while at Amazon, the activities that you do in finance are often interdependent on sales activities and marketing activities and operational activities, Um, but that they all generally include different skill sets, different places to take action on those recommendations. So we basically break all of our recommendations into four categories, sales, marketing, operations, and finance.
0: Okay. So I understand now. So just to summarize, this is going to be a a fun conversation. I can see that coming because everything (laughs) on Amazon is data driven and process based. So You can't just do things off the cuff. So would it then be fair to say that you are uh, looking at the whole operation and you're gathering the data and that data translates into a set of metrics or KPIs, and then based on what that number is for a particular KPI, you then tell the seller, do this, do that, do the other. So would it be fair to characterize it that way?
1: Yes, I the only thing I would add is everything that happens on Amazon is either good or bad. We do things to do more good and less bad.
0: Okay. Eliminate the negative, accentuate the positive. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the essence of it. Great. Okay. So uh for all of you listening, what we're gonna do in this episode is you cannot miss this. We're gonna dive into four different areas of running your Amazon operation in sales, marketing, operations, and finance. And we're going to, Nater is going to walk us through what are some KPIs or metrics that you must keep an eye on. But most important, what you do with them based on the kind of reading you're getting on that day. So that's our agenda. With that, let's jump right into sales. So share with us some of the sales-related KPIs or metrics.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, as we go through sales, marketing, operations, finance, the most obvious is sales. So sales are going to include, and this is not just Amazon, any e-commerce. You need eyeballs, you need humans to sell to, and you need, when they're there, to actually buy your product. So on Amazon, that manifests heavily in page views, also manifests in conversion rates, simply unit sales. It's also, I think Amazon's a very, how would I put this? It's a platform of um, comparison quite often. So it's not just, I need 20% conversion rate because I sell any product or anything you need a particular conversion rate juxtaposed to your peers or your competitors and how they're converting with the customer. So the best way I like to think about this is, you know, if you sell shampoo, um, you, you know, and let's say for simple numbers, let's say there's a million eyeballs on Amazon trying to buy shampoo every, I don't know, week. Um, If you can get a particular share of those eyeballs, so if there's a million You want to have some percentage of those. So that's kind of another metric there would be share of voice. Um, We want to have some percentage of the eyeballs accessing us. That starts to open up other other areas, right? You can't get eyeballs without some marketing. Your operations need to be tight, but that's the difference. We'll get to that. Um, And then once you have some percentage of those million eyeballs, um, you need to convert. You need to convert them. And if you're getting too many page views, that's actually deteriorating your conversion rate. Conversion rate on Amazon is very simple units sold as a numerator, eyeballs or detail page hits or page views is the, is the denominator, right? So if I'm selling hundred units and I'm getting a thousand of those million eyeballs on my shampoo detail pages um, every week, then I have, I forget what numbers I just said there, I was trying to use simple zeros, but 10% conversion rate, I think is what I just said. Um, and if I add another 2000, page views, so now I go to 3,000 um, page views and I don't sell any more units. So I spent a lot of money on ads, or I sent TikTok traffic, or I did something flashy, to usually, that sent a bunch of eyeballs to my detail pages, but it didn't impact the users actually bought, those new users buying the product. My conversion rate's gonna go down. So sometimes our activities that grow page views deteriorate our sales activities and deteriorate Amazon's confidence in our product being right for the customer. So Amazon would would take that little example I gave you, and they would say, oh, you used to get 10% of everybody we gave you that wanted shampoo, you used to make them happy. We gave you more people, and now only 3%, now only three of every 10 people we give you, um, or sorry, now only, uh, so we went from 100 out of 1,000, now 100 out of 3,000, So we give you more people, you make less of them happy. And Amazon doesn't, they don't just sit back and take that. They also don't give you that metric. But that metric massively impacts where your products sit in their warehouse. How long does it take them to onboard your product? What is the product sitting next to inside these warehouses? Um, uh, When they give you impressions, when you're trying to pay for the word shampoo or pay for the word organic shampoo, Amazon knows if Nick is shopping or Nader is shopping, and Nick has a history of Looking at two products and buying one of them in the next 12 seconds. And Nader has a history of looking at 100 products and reading all the reviews. Well, Amazon doesn't dispense those impressions um, uh, equally. They're very uh, they're very pointed and they're very rewarding of the businesses that reward their business. Their business is to keep customers happy, to be the most customer-centric company in the world. Well, the way that you do that is you get a lot of customers and you make them happy In an increasing fashion you make them more happy the more customers you get to engage with so if your detail page if your asin is getting a worse conversion rate because you're sending less qualified traffic to your detail page you can bet you're going to have a massive impact on your sales potential on amazon and likely the 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 actual sold unit numbers
0: yeah yeah i mean this is this is like the 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 most important thing about amazon I would say is the conversion rate. So Amazon wants you to convert at a higher rate because high conversion implies that this is a good product, which means your reviews are there and people who are buying it are not returning it. They're not getting a refund. They're not complaining. Uh, Your reviews are as high as possible, five-star rating if possible so that implies that your product is making people happy so therefore they want they feel confident to give you more visitors to your page and the more visitors exactly. will mean without you doing anything so all they are doing is for anybody who's looking at their search query performance page there is a column there it's, it shows search volume and and your it, there's a the column says brand share. That means what percentage of that total volume Amazon decided to give you. And right at the beginning of a launch, you're going to see that's a very small number because they don't know how your product is going to perform. And then once it starts to perform, conversion rates are acceptable and you, you are getting basically people making them satisfied with their purchase, they just simply increase that brand share. And of course, with millions of people constantly doing things that literally increase from, let's say, going from 5% to 8% to 10%, that becomes a huge jump for you. And so to your point, Amazon also expects your conversion
1: to go up, right? All the time. Not down. (laughs) Within uh, it's relative, right? So it's relative to Amazon is a world of benchmarks. That's what I always like to to tell people. If you wonder about what is it like to walk around in Amazon halls, it's a hallway filled with benchmarks everywhere, and that's what's managing their business. The humans are walking around, playing their part, as as I did as an Amazonian. Um, But it's filled with benchmarks, right? So the conversion rate in shampoo it's going to be a little bit different than the conversion rate in organic shampoo. It's going to be a little bit different than the conversion rate in conditioner even. Leave alone how different it is from deodorant or TVs or remote control cars. Um, and so Amazon is a system of benchmarks, right? So Amazon doesn't judge your performance. It judges sorry, it judges your performance against others who are serving that customer need. So if what you sell is organic shampoo, Amazon is saying, I can't expect you to convert 50% of your customers cuz on average, most of the other organic shampoos are converting at 10%. And so you're always in relativity to your, your competition, and that's how you're proving to Amazon's algorithm that your product is more right for their customers than the alternative options. And the other big one to follow on the conversion rate is, do people come back and at what ratio? And are they subscribing if you're selling in a, you know, if you're selling in a category that subscriptions can happen in? You don't have to have subscriptions to have repeat purchases of, of, of products, though. Um, and that's a very, very big metric with Amazon. Uh, there's a big metric. I can't remember the exact acronym now. There's so many Amazon acronyms. Um, you, you lose some of them as you walk away. But Amazon has an acronym. Some, some ex Amazonian who watches this will, will know exactly what I'm talking about, where Amazon actually knows the value to them, the value to Amazon as a store, it is for having your product on its shelf. So let's take. Let's take the laundry detergent category, for example. Amazon knows if they sell laundry detergent and they do not have Tide on their shelves, that has an impact in their ability to sell um, all laundry detergent, in the United States at least, where Tide has a very large market share offline. Even though you might not sell offline, every ASIN has this metric at Amazon. Every ASIN Amazon knows is either Uh, has a bigger or smaller impact on their ability to keep customers happy and coming back in the stores. Sometimes just having another additional organic shampoo on their shelf has some value to them, even if you're not quite converting as high as some of your peers, because it gives customers the, well, we don't need to get into this, but the illusion of choice or in the reality of choice, right? They can choose multiple options of organic shampoos, and that keeps Amazon customers happy because That keeps them coming back to engage Amazon's content, to engage the different search results, um, all of which makes Amazon fat and happy. So this is very
0: interesting. I did not know this. So share with us one more time. Every ASIN has a metric that tells Amazon what? That part, Let's, let's clarify that because it's very important.
1: Tells Amazon the value to them as a store of having your product on the shelf or not? So, so to, to put it into extreme, if you have no organic shampoos on your shelf, none, you don't have one, you don't have one single ASIN, that has a very negative impact to um, Amazon being a store that sells organic shampoos. If you have a billion ASINs of organic shampoos on your organic shampoo shelf, that there's eventually, uh, that's going to have a negative impact on Amazon as well. So there is a sweet spot based off of the size of the customers shop shopping for shampoo and shopping for organic shampoo. Um, there's a sweet spot for the number of ASINs they want to have on their shelf. And there's a sweet spot um, for the type of retention and repeat purchase behavior. And do, when they buy your organic shampoo, do they usually use it three times? They buy it three times from Amazon before then they try another one. And then what happens after they try that other one? Do they come back to you for one more time, three more times, 13 more times? All of these metrics impact how Amazon views the value of having your ACEN on their shelf impacts their ability to have a great store.
0: And what is that metric? Is that like a score they assign or is it a percentage of something or dollar value?
1: Yeah, it's a numeric score. It's a very, very complicated algorithm. And in in, in all of the submetrics that are, Used to build up, you know, it's a bunch of if x then y, if x then y, if if a then b, if if c then d, and all these if x then y statements come together and result in a score, a number, kind of like an IPI score for for you know they a long time ago, not that long ago, excuse me, they didn't tell you how good you were doing with fulfillment on Amazon. They knew some were great and some were pretty bad, but they never actually they never gave you a metric to really help you understand that. They gave you IPI score, which as most people probably know, is a very complicated algorithm that has numerous, a large number of metrics. More, I would say, um, uh, prob- a lot less than the number of metrics involved in the, a lot, a lot less data involved in the metric we're discussing now. Yeah. So okay. So
0: every ASIN has a score, and then when you go up against that ASIN, so as a private label seller, you will be the only seller on that
1: ASIN, right? Sure, I'm following you, yep.
0: Yeah, so therefore, you automatically inherit that value because Hmm. your capability to fulfill the orders on that ASIN will actually make that score even greater potentially. Is that the case or no?
1: Correct. It also means if you're a reseller, which is not very popular nowadays, it was extremely popular many years back, um, you get to hijack for the moment in time you have their buy box, you have their score. If you sell Tide Pod, I, yeah. I know Tide Pods is a very high score, right? Having Tide Pods at your store of selling laundry detergent is a good thing. It helps you sell more laundry detergent. Yeah. And so well, Tide Pods doesn't go out of stock very often, though. Yeah, Hard I familiar
0: with that because uh, I was, I was a reseller in those days. There was no private label. But um, I learned from my Amazon contacts that we became very friendly with. Uh, Frankly, anybody listening, go listen to episode 101. You'll hear my story. I got shut down, stayed offline for six weeks. But uh, we used that opportunity Mm -hmm. to uh, become friendly with the category manager at the time. And she shared with us because she saw that we really didn't know what we were doing. We had no bad intentions. They taught me a lot and and I learned the idea of merchant of authority. So that merchant of authority was a big deal to achieve. And we became merchant of authority on so many ASINs And we could oh, wow. we could I mean we could literally change the titles to our advantage uh, anytime Nick, we wanted.
1: Nick is the reason brand registry exists. Maybe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I I did I did I I did so much work but all for good stuff. And we became mm. merchant of authority for a good reason. Otherwise, you know how Amazon works. Yeah. They don't. So um, anyway, okay. So, um, so the private label seller being ideally being the only seller on that particular ASIN that, yep. it, that has a score, that's a huge value. So now we started talking about this because we were talking about conversion rate. So conversion rate becomes... Even more important, so if you have associated yourself with an ASIN that has a high score and you're converting low versus converting high, tell us how that impacts you as a seller.
1: If, if you have, sorry, if you have two ASINs, one converts high, one converts low?
0: No, no, just one ASIN. Let's say that you, you have a high value ASIN as far as Amazon is concerned. Uh, sure. As yet, that you are, you are converting poorly versus converting successfully what what kind Mm. of an impact does that make
1: yeah so there's there's likely optimization opportunities whether that um so we often see we see a lot of sellers they don't track um the actual sentimentality that's happening inside of reviews so for example we had a recent review of someone who sells it's not shampoo, it's not organic shampoo but it's a similar product um, and 17 of the last 20 negative reviews that they got negative just meaning if it's 3 stars, 2 stars or 1 star 17 of the last 20 that they received all included the word leakage well you having a great product, you having great content, you sending eyeballs coming in from TikTok, you doing all these crazy things that most people can't even get right but your product can't get to the customer without leaking and it's it's showing up in the data if you look that's a major major problem and it makes all your other efforts irrelevant your, your, your supply chain, your strong, your better negotiated costs with your supplier, all, that's all irrelevant if your product leaks when it goes to the Amazon customer. And Amazon customers have a lot of power. Most people don't know this, but there's a, 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 a business practice that Amazon took from Toyota. Toyota has something called the Andon cord, it's where they empower every single person who works in a Toyota facility from the janitor to the guy putting in the most important part, to the guy painting the least important part, to the guy. Helping the robot do all those works, all those jobs. every single one of those employees has the ability to literally grab a cord and pull it, the end-off cord. They can shut down the entire production line because something in their little minute responsibility, something is wrong. and Toyota has said, if one little thing is wrong, all of it can't happen. Amazon has adopted that exact same business practice. been there for many, many years more than uh, more than 10 years ago um, when I was there it was it was alive and well and it's still alive and well today. And on cords can get pulled. They most often get pulled by customer service agents. So the people that are looking at these reviews, that are taking calls from Amazon customers, saying, "Oh wow, lot more, a lot higher frequency than a standard deviation of what we typically see of this product going out is damaged upon going out." Amazon pulled the cord. Asin ace and, ace and shut off. You can't find it on Amazon. Most sellers. Find it when it's too late, or they find it when they get a ticket submission to them saying, "Hey, we need you to look into this. Can you confirm this issue, et cetera, et cetera?" That's a really, really big deal, especially if you're doing high volume. Um, sometimes those can be down for a week. Um, that that can be millions of dollars, depending on you know the size the size of your business. So sorry, I forget exactly how I got I got down the rabbit hole of and on cords. Um, but you you asked about you have one ASIN. Um, and it has a a worse conversion rate. Um, Oftentimes, conversion rate is a, um, what's the word? It's like the, conversion rate is like the um, thermometer to a temperature, right? So thermometer, it tells you your readout, right? Am I I 105 degrees or am I 92 degrees or am I 98 degrees right now? Um, Conversion rate tells us the health of the ASIN on Amazon, right? So, cause conversion rate is agnostic to size, whether you get hundred eyeballs or, or a billion eyeballs, no matter what time range you're looking at, conversion rate is always reflective of the true health of that ASIN, right? That ASIN only got 10, 10 eyeballs, great. It still should probably convert at least two of them. It got hundred eyeballs. It should probably be converting 20 of them depending on the category you're in. And so conversion rate is like the, the thermometer readout. Oftentimes the sickness that is causing your thermometer to go up or down, All kinds of things are the reason our our, our temperatures change and all kinds of reasons are the reasons our conversion rates go up and down, whether it's simple things like content, whether it's more complicated things like um, we are systematically not getting high likely to convert impressions. Maybe we're paying for ads only on our competitors, right? If I sell a Tide Pod competitive product and all I do is go after Tide Pod, well, everyone who comes to Amazon looking for Tide Pods is probably not that open to trying an alternative option. And so maybe I'm sending the wrong traffic. Um, maybe I'm not looking at these reviews. Maybe, like I said earlier, one of my other ASINs is a really high conversion rate on my detail page. And so it's getting all the eyeballs and I can't get good eyeballs to my other, de- my other ASINs in that variated detail page. Maybe, um, there's the, 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 maybe, my, maybe even my images are gone. Maybe something happened to my listing. Um, maybe my competitor's price got more competitive recently. Maybe they're running a promotion. Maybe I just, maybe I was in the top 20 in the shampoo category. And now I I just fell all the way back to ranking number 39, right? The the reason that we're sick, the reason that our conversion rate on the thermometer is going up and down is, is nuanced. Um, and to ask, to ask, I used to do this when I was at Amazon as a human, when I was empowered by a system. And then I tried doing it as an Amazon agency um, without all those systems, without all the insider information and what was happening at Amazon. It's really hard to do that as a human to one, know every sickness that can exist for an ASIN, know which one's happening to you right now, and to see it across all your ASINs that you work on is difficult. You need, you need, good, you need a, a thermometer readout, like conversion rate, but you need a good thermometer, um, a thermometer that helps you identify, You know, is it pneumonia or is it just the flu? Is it COVID or something else? Yeah. Um, and that's so, what great tools and services can do.
0: Yeah, Nader, I have a question. Is it possible to see that score Amazon assigns to an ASIN? (laughs)
1: Uh, No, there would be, if you got it from someone inside of Amazon, I remember reading my non-compete and all my NDA information um, very thoroughly with a lawyer because I wanted to go work in the Amazon industry after leaving Amazon. Um, And uh, they are very covered. Um, It would be very bad if someone shared that with you. Um, and so you'll, you'll, you'll not get it unless Amazon changes their mind, which let's talk about Amazon's evolution of sharing data. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, was say,
0: yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, you know, how, how much data that they started to share that before it wasn't even available. You couldn't even think about it. I mean, we now that that search query performance alone, now they share your brand share, your at your your entire funnel, all the way, even that includes ad to cut. I mean, think about all that stuff two years ago. It was never possible even to think about it. So now they share. So this may be, I wasn't suggesting, like try to figure it out, uh, but I was thinking maybe there is a, the, because one way not to provide information is to provide too much information. <laughs> So perhaps maybe in this whole list of things that Amazon provides, maybe there is a place where you can see that, but you're telling me it's not available.
1: You could reverse engineer it just like companies like Helium 10 and Jungle Scout and One Click Retail have reverse engineered market segment share, right? How much, what's my percentage of the shampoo category, right? They never, for a long time, you've been able to get that information. Some of those companies have not been very accurate Um, in their reverse engineering, but just like that metric, you could reverse engineer um, this metric. It would take a lot of work. I I don't know of anyone um, who's trying um, on that that particular metric um, uh, because it's surely a complicated one.
0: Because that would be also a good piece of criteria to do your product research because you can target those high value uh, categories and and, ASINs, and then go from there. Okay, so uh,
1: but or you line, could find find the categories that don't have a very high score asin yet. Yes, meaning meaning it's open. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, there's many ways to use the data. So um, okay, so conversion rate clearly, and we've talked this to almost to that in terms of what are some things to do if the conversion rate is low. So let's uh, discuss other things. Like I uh, heard you mention earlier that you have a metric that you track. I think you mentioned sales um, across variations and then to see if, if one variation is cannibalizing the other. So tell us, first of all, what is it exactly that you're watching? And then what triggers you doing something about? it?
1: Yeah, it's conversion rate, actually. Ironically, it comes back to conversion rate. Yeah. So let's say you sell, um, I think it's something with a lot of variation, uh, maybe nail polish. You have a red one, a pink one, a blue one, a green one. Maybe you have, I don't know, 30 colors on your detail page. Um, let's leave out that that might be a bit overwhelming to a customer to just physically click through the human experience might be overwhelming. We can leave that out because that's quite subjective. It's, it's quite difficult to put data around that unless, unless you're like, you know, foo and you can run, you know, um, tests against, you know, customers. Um, but what we see is, let's say, I don't know, maybe your red color um, nail polish has a 42% conversion rate, which is likely, um, likely quite a bit higher than a, a, a typical customer behavior in that category. So let's say typically customers convert one out of every 10. So maybe 10% is let's say the average in that in that category. Um, and if you're converting at 42%, that's a um, a large, a large magnitude change, standard deviation away from the average. And let's say all the other colors, the other 29 colors in your 30 variated and detail page, um, let's say they are all somewhere between one and two and a half percent conversion rate. That little example that I'm giving you, believe it or not, it's, it's quite common with yes, 30 ASIN can, detail pages.
0: I can tell you it is. I, I have some of my clients that have the same kind of results.
1: Totally. Um, and so um, in that scenario, you have a couple things happening to your business that you might not be aware of. Number one, when you are sending eyeballs to your ASIN, that is the red one with a 42% conversion rate, whether it's paid or organically. So whether you're controlling through pay-per-click or you're sending traffic from outside sources, or it's organic where it says, we recommend for you or customers who bought this, also bought this or just naturally in search results. Either way, Amazon is, is incentivized to send high likely, con- high likely to convert impressions to the 42% conversion rate, ASIN because Amazon says, hmm, somebody is, interested in nail polish. And I have this one that almost makes one out of every two people happy when I send them there. I'm going to send the people who I think are really close to making a purchase decision there because I trust that. I know that that's a good place for them. So what happens is you tip the scale against your other 29 ASIN. You are doing all the things right on Amazon. You're running ads. You're sending outside traffic. You're trying to get organic exposure. And by accident, you're really just helping that ASIN do really well, which is, which, is, which is good and maybe even great. Maybe that's actually all that matters. But oftentimes you don't wanna be entirely reliant on your one red skew. You wanna have some diversification in your revenue, right? Like if something goes wrong here or another competitor comes out with a cheaper, better red one, it'd be nice if your blue nail polish was also moving up the ranks. And so what happens is sometimes the simple activity of taking that red ASIN, having it live on its own detail page by itself, there's, there's multiple ways to do this. You can also take it and then the next three best conversion rates and put them on this. But let's just say simp- simply take the one red one, have it live on its own detail page, have the other 29 ASINs live on that same detail page by themselves now. Now you go back to sending traffic both directions. Kind of sucks. You got to send. You split your traffic into two different, uh, you know, two different locations of real estate, if you will. Uh, but now all of a sudden, Amazon organically and with your payment for ads, is going to start to give these other 29 a different chance than it gave it when it was on the same page with the one that was converting at um, 42%. Sometimes a simple activity of just taking the really high converting ASIN out, you will see that really high converting ASIN not have too much of a dip at all when it goes to live on its own. And you will see a raise, if you control your variables and do nothing else different, you keep the price, you keep inventory the same, you keep you know, the same budget level spreading across, you will see a rise in the other 29 so 90 I have, I have to say probably 90% of the time
0: yeah that's that's i mean that's a great strategy and so for the listener's benefit let me just back up because we, we are really uh, digging deep here in terms of conversion yeah. rate and different uses of it so what we've discussed so far is another way to use conversion rate uh, for you to take action and that is if, this is only if you're selling one parent ASIN and multiple variations under it, you want to keep an eye on the conversion rate of each child ASIN. And if there is a big difference between one particular variation and the others, uh, what Nader is saying is you are better off separating that out as a standalone listing because that item that's already receiving attention, Amazon will, automatically send more traffic to that one. That's why the picture in the search result that shows up is always the highest performing one. Uh, so and, and that will continue to uh, cannibalize the other variations. But when you separate it out, you don't have much of a dip on that single one. But Amazon algorithm will send more traffic to the rest of it and then spread it equally so that, Another child has the opportunity to stand down.
1: And
0: so that way you start to build up uh, each child ASIN when there is one outlier, so to speak, Uh, the others also get a chance. But you do that mainly because you separate what that high performing ASIN. Uh, Would that be a a good summary, Nader?
1: It is. But then the, the part I would add and what makes Amazon so challenging is that might change. What we just talked about might change. That might not be true three months from now, six months from now. And so the real value in running an Amazon business, the real way you know about if you're doing the right thing or not, is if you constantly do all of these things, you measure the results and you measure the change in results. So 90% 90 of the time, what I just described to you has worked for the last year. It will show up dramatically different if we we do it again for the next 10 ASINs. And whoa, all of a sudden, a totally different result happened. That's how you know when something changed at Amazon and your tactics need to change if something changes at Amazon. I like to always remind people, Amazon, I feel like the Amazon seller industry or knowledge industry has been very interesting in that they try and it's been very like attempted to be fixed rules. And what I try to remind everyone is Amazon is a playground to the people that built it. And it's a, a playground of tools, right? A hammer is used to hammer a nail. But if you've worked in construction, you know that sometimes you're, I don't know, you strip your screw and to get that screw down further, you need to go grab the nail that has nothing to do with screwing or sorry, you need to go grab the hammer and hammer that screw just a little bit further. Yeah. All of whether it's variations, monitoring conversion rates, playing with your images, playing with your images that show up inside of search results and manipulating that all of these are tools and those tools need to be used, you know, at different times in different ways to, to, to build a house.
0: Yeah. I have a question. If you separate a child ASIN from a parent,
1: mm-hmm. what happens to the reviews? Uh, this, is, this is where there's not cut and dry, black and white. Every case needs, this, needs some rules. So with Amazon, Amazon reserves the right to associate reviews with ASIN in bulk or an individual, and they never give themselves. They never give away that right. So Amazon says, again, let's say you sell. Let's actually choose one that's less controversial. Let's say you sell this this cardigan, and you sell it in large, medium, and small. Amazon gets to make the decision that everyone who buys this cardigan, whether they buy the large, the medium, or the small, the the, the, the three different child variations you asked about. Amazon gets to say, you know what? I think everyone's reviews on that product. I think they should all be shared because the reviews are not, probably not gonna be about the fit. They're mm-hmm. probably gonna be about how it looks and how does it drape off your shoulders, blah, 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 blah. Amazon could though, at any moment, choose for themselves the, the uh, right to say, you know what? That review was written for a size small. That review is only owned by the size small child, child ASIN. So what you have happen is most categories follow a trend. Some categories on Amazon, don't share reviews at all across child ASINs. And some categories on Amazon generally always share. Um, my experience with um, color is there's is more kind of happy medium, right? So like a green might be a lot worse than the red. So Amazon might say, I actually do want those reviews to stay with the actual ASIN that that customer bought, the red one or the green one. Um, whereas sizing um, is a little bit different. Um, the good thing is you can you can look at a few detail pages and quickly, like if you're sitting at home, you can quickly identify which categories are consistently breaking apart reviews or not by just clicking on the, the ASIN in the variation and you'll see the review count change or you won't see it change. Um,
0: this is actually interesting because we were working on this last week. So I have a client, they have two, uh, they have two tiers, they have size and color. And they they sell a mask. So they they started off as a vendor to Amazon. And then they became a seller. So some of their listings were created not directly by themselves. Later, they created listings. But even when they created their own listings, they didn't know what they were doing. So they were all over the place. Uh, One of the things that I do with my clients when I work uh, is consolidate all the child SKUs that were created as standalones under one parent, but then we ask seller support to consolidate the number, which they then do.
1: Every so, time? Every time well, you
0: ask? now that you mentioned category business, I cannot tell you every time because I wasn't paying attention to the category. All I know is whoever I did this with, it was a bit of a back and forth, But nevertheless, in the end, it ended up getting uh, consolidated. So, um, yes, uh, like in this mask situation, I noticed that every single ASIN, and of course, they have like eight, nine colors and three sizes. You can imagine the number of combinations. And then every time we clicked on an ASIN, the number would change. But that doesn't necessarily tell me Amazon has attributed those reviews to that ASIN. Uh, it, can, it can tell me that. It can also tell me that nobody has bothered to consolidate yet.
1: This is true. There's a third thing it can tell you. It can tell you that they have changed their mind. And this happens a lot at Amazon. Uh, Amazon has, as they've become a big marketplace with, you have ASINs with 10,000 reviews, 30,000 reviews, 90,000 reviews, 118,000 reviews. And so what happens is, let's say the next thousand reviews on your ASIN that has 100,000 reviews, the next 1,000, so only 1%. The next 1,000 come in as bad, like one, two, or three star. It won't actually, they won't be educating the next customer unless that customer clicks on show me the recent reviews, organized by date, and then they have to actually go through. But if they're reliant on the customer to just still see it's like 4.9 average stars because it's got so many five stars that are floating it up. And in that case, that variated detail page that has all those reviews, Amazon say, you know what, I need to break this apart so that I can be honest with the customer about the whatever green color um, nail polish is actually getting a lot of really bad reviews right now. I need to be more honest with my customers. And that's why you will see it change. And that's why you can never trust that it's set. Amazon, it is not set for good.
0: Okay. So
1: really what I'm
0: hearing from you Nader is this is something not necessarily maybe it will be reported by uh, as by a metric, but as a matter of strategy, when you create these asins, create them as a standalone and then put them under a parent. That way, their reviews stay segmented to each child. In case down the road you want to separate them, because when you separate. The reviews will simply go with the ASIN you're separating. That way you don't have to worry about this. Would that be a right way to do things?
1: Yeah. Generally speaking, we like to build ASINs. We we, we, we really like to urge people to say, if you're going to sell this product, don't just sell it because you need to have a size extra small of this cardigan. Do you believe that there's customers that need an extra small cardigan? If you can't confidently get behind that and build a detail page in an ASIN that is just an extra small cardigan, you shouldn't sell it because you're causing yourself some future problem, whether it's over cannibalization of the larges, or um, inventory challenges, or Amazon sending the extra small to people who bought the extra large, or all the nuances that can exist from having too many products on Amazon. We always state that if you're building an ASIN, do you stand behind the SKU? Do you think it has a? Does it belong on a shelf? If this was your store and you were really paying the customer to sit there. If, Paying the employees to sit there, turn the lights on, paying the electricity bill, uh, paying the bank for transaction fees. If this was your store, would you actually still put an extra small cardigan on your on that shelf? If so, great. You need to turn it into an ASIN. And sure, it probably makes sense to have extra small live with the small, medium, large, extra large on one detail page until one of them maybe cannibalizes, and maybe then you change. Um, but it's really important to get to, to look yourself in the mirror when you're running an Amazon business and say, do I do I actually think this ASIN you know, deserves to be in a store that's, you know, in whatever, whatever region you're selling in. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of people don't actually take that question serious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, because it's real estate, right? That's what it is. It's taking up real estate. So um, I did, so what is the answer to, if you started off with a parent child combination and you've got reviews under that parent and you decide to separate out, are you then saying that that ASIN has its share of those reviews and therefore those reviews will go with that ASIN? That's what you're saying. Is that right?
1: Yep. Typically, that's what happens. So if you have a varied page with 100 reviews and you take the red nail polish and let's say 50 of those reviews were on the red nail polish, well, then your red nail polish detail page will have 50 reviews and your old one of 29 ASINs would then have 50 reviews because there's 50 reviews left up across the other 29.
0: So it doesn't hurt to start with multiple variations under one parent because at the end of the day, reviews are attributed to ASINs. And if you decide to separate, they will travel with it.
1: Generally speaking, yes. Unfortunately, there are, a I wouldn't actually call it anomalies. I guess I would say a lot of anomalies, which is kind of an oxymoron, but oftentimes reviews fall off with data transfers. Amazon, you know, it's, got a lot of data moving a lot of direction a lot of databases and yeah, they, get um,
0: orphaned, probably. they get orphaned probably
1: yeah yep it happens yeah more more often way more often than i would have ever imagined but and it does
0: things get killed you know merchants uh, themselves delete their listings and then there are reviews associated with it and then suddenly those, those reviews will disappear probably yeah
1: yeah eh, yeah in in theory amazon i remember this was this was a big uh a big debate when I was at Amazon a long time ago now, Um, back in 2014, um, 2013. um, Amazon, the big debate was, you know, do we we want a history of everything that's ever been on our shelves here? Because in theory, somebody else could come sell it. Um, If it was sold once, it could be sold again. Um, Or do we want to have the cleanest possible marketplace with the most efficient user experience, um, it's a big debate, right? Because there's there's pros and cons to both side of that for both sides of that for Amazon.
0: What was the outcome?
1: The outcome so this was often so this was back when vendor central was the vast majority of sales on Amazon. The outcome was we need to empower sellers so that we diversify our reliance on more humans and more businesses of supplying product to our customers. So the outcome was. We, we you know, just because Tide Pod doesn't want to sell Tide Pods on Amazon anymore, we're not going to let them delete it because Nick's going to show up with Tide Pods that he buys at Costco in some big keep discounted price. Keep the history. Keep, keep the history because the history is the history is the history is the history. Exactly. That's what people really think about the product.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with it. What side were you on?
1: I, I was on that one um, <laughs> because I, I worked with vendors and I saw how you know, vendors are very used to having a relationship with a buyer and, um, you know, uh, it's kind of a, what have you done for me lately relationship and who gets end cap and who's at the eye level in a shelf, you know, in a store. Well, yeah. when you democratize the shelf, those power okay. dynamics are gone.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is great. So Nader, I said at the beginning, we're going to have four areas. Then
1: we started- <laughs> We do. We got like halfway through one
0: so we've got to do uh, we've got to do more here i mean i so uh, it's this is such a to me this is a delicious subject because you can only make things better by simply you know following what we're talking about cuz we are we live in the information age 21st century and you are playing in amazon's backyard which is all about data and process so the more you know what data to look at and what to do with that data the more power to you so and that's what we are here for uh, that's what your platform does so i think i think we ought to do a follow up uh, for sure and the way i see it multiple follow ups <laughs> so deal uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll tackle it so a uh, great conversation several things here uh, today that uh, our listeners will take away Um, So enough with the business talk, let's now get to know you a little bit. So we've obviously heard several times you're former Amazonian, but what I'm interested in the most is what got you, what were the origins that got you on this journey? So growing up as a child, tell us, start with where you grew up and tell us a little bit about your first entrepreneurial tendencies that you realized Hmm. as a kid.
1: Yeah, that's awesome, Nick. I'm glad you do it this way. Um, yeah, so uh, I grew up in a, um, you know, a working class family. I'm the first young child to ever go to college. I think that was a big part of my story, which eventually led to entrepreneurship. I had a lineage and generations before me that dreamed of a better life. Um, that, that was kind of the, held by a gatekeeper called a, you know a college degree. Um, and when I got to college, I was before college, I was a, a three sport athlete. Um, I was, you know, I had a 4.0 in high school. I was trying to do all the things possible to give myself a chance at this better life that my grandma told me about, my aunts and uncles told me about, my parents, you know, prayed for me to have. Um, and so I tried to open every door I could. As I get to college, um, with so much expectation built behind it, right? Because I don't I don't have anyone who's ever been to college around me to even tell me what I'm going into. We don't even know what moving into a dorm looks like. We showed up like Beverly Hillbillies with like all my family in all our cars with way too many pieces of furniture for a dorm room, um, which is the real experience of, of first generation um, people. I think I think others would, would resonate with that. But um, anyways, I get to college and I honestly looked around and was like, you know, this is it. This is what my family has dreamed of as a better life. Like all these kids just party and like, barely scrape by and the athletes don't actually go to school. I'm like, this is, this is not the world that I was dreaming about that I think my, my family dreamt about. And so I just, I was like, I got to do something more than go to school and, and play some sports. So um, I just started reading. I just started going to the, the, uh, the library and the bookstore on discount days. And I remember there was a discount on the, um, the four-hour work week uh, by Tim Ferriss. That was, that was my gateway drug. And what, to, what exposed me to the idea that, you know, you can find a way to serve customers and build structure and processes around serving customers that doesn't have to sacrifice your life. And I didn't know that. My mom worked with special needs kids. My dad was a construction worker. Like they trade their life for access to money so they can afford to live. Um, and that was the world I knew. And I read the four hour work week and I saw a different world existed. So that's when I launched my first company, which was a grocery delivery company. Um, company in the Pacific Northwest. Um, this was back in 2008. Uh, no one really was delivering groceries. I, I missed the mark by about a decade and a couple pandemics um, later. Um, but uh, we were the only ones delivering groceries in the Pacific Northwest and eventually Seattle. And then eventually we get a call after running it for several years while in school, my co-founder and I, um, we get a call that says Amazon's actually gonna launch a test program. And from the local news and they said, hey, you know, we, we were looking at who else delivers groceries and you guys are the only people delivering groceries in Seattle. Um, so we're going to do a test against you and Amazon. Um, and we our products, same same grocery list, our products got to the got to the newsroom faster and cheaper. And we we're like, this is the world's greatest advertisement like we could ever ask for. Um, mm-hmm. That was the naive part of us. Uh, the other part was the recognizing that we went from zero competitors to one. Uh, who was Amazon, and you know, I think we know we know the story with that. Although they still haven't figured out grocery delivery that well. Um, anyway, so that's what that's what I, I ended up uh, leaving my startup. My my co-founder stayed with it, and he ended up turning it into a beautiful company, which is probably a story for another another day. Um, we found that people described groceries in like crazy ways. Like, would not if you wanted, I don't know, two percent half gallon Dairy Gold milk, like that's pretty straightforward English. We'd be able to get you exactly what you wanted, but oftentimes people wanted that and they would have all kinds of other words or different ways they would describe the products that they want. So we had to start to basically um, categorize attributes of products so that we could identify what somebody wanted when they weren't being straightforward with their search queries. Um, anyways, he now, um, he now powers a lot of search bars around the world that um, uh, based on the work that we started together. Um, and it's, Really cool story. His name is Brody. I'll I'll tell you about him offline. I think I think you guys yeah. would have an awesome conversation. Anyway, so I left him though. I said, hey man, I I came from nothing. We we had something going, um, but like this is scary to go from no competitor to one competitor. Like this was good while we were living in a dorm room, but I don't know if I could build a family around this. Um, like I want to go learn from inside the belly of the beast, and so I took advantage of that opportunity and. Uh reached out to people at Amazon until somebody would give me an interview. Um, and then uh, fast forward into, I don't know, a decade later, and here we are.
0: <laughs> well, this is a great story. So uh, grocery delivery. I remember, I remember actually, remember a company called Peapod?
1: Very, very well. We They were on the East Coast. They weren't on the West Coast. We were copycat and everything we could learn about peapods and putting it into the west coast before yeah, instacart as well yeah
0: and then peapod was acquired uh, because they could never make money except that a grocery stop and shop acquired peapod and then they <laughs> said uh, okay we, i think we're gonna do what you are doing except we'll it will facilitate what we already do so uh, it was a great model it What I want to know is you don't go from nothing to starting a company. So that must have been somewhere in your your beginnings. So there was because starting a company is risk-taking. And yeah. that does not come naturally. I mean, we, we are as creatures. We don't like risk. We don't like unknown. That's why when the, when you turn the lights off, you know, we become uncomfortable, right? Because we can't see what's yeah. around.
1: So yeah, I agree.
0: When was it as a child? When was the first time you thought you know you you don't mind taking risk? In fact, you pursue taking risks, uh, things like that. Did, do you remember when that was?
1: Yeah yeah it wasn't a particular time. it was really every day that my parents my mom worked with special needs children and adults and my dad um, uh, was a was a builder a laborer and then eventually an electrician um, and my mom would bring me to every time she was working with special needs kids and I would help her watch them. I would interact with them. She'd bring me when she was working with special needs adults and I would hang with them and I would play pool with them or I would, you know, be their right hand when they, you know, only had a left hand at the pool ball, the, with the pool stick. Pool stick. Um, and I would say it was through the every day with my mom showing me that, um, anything is, is possible. Um, you as a kid who's not getting paid can be here and be of value. Um, these people who, um, you know, are, are have disadvantages in life, um, can be happy. They, they, they can not live the way you maybe see them on TV. Um, and then my dad through sports, um, you know, all he could really do was be there at practice and, and kind of usually be there after practice. Um, and we would stay late every time. And I remember vividly, I, I, there was nothing I could do to get on the football field um, when I was younger. I couldn't, I couldn't get a starting spot, but we didn't have a kicker yet on the team. And so my dad said, we're gonna force you to kick a football a billion times tonight until you can kick a ball so that you can make tryouts and you'll be able to make the team. And we kicked the ball so many times. We broke my foot from impact. We, we broke, uh, uh, we didn't even know how to kick a ball. So we were kicking it with our toes. So I, my toes were straight and I would kick the ball straight on, not like under the ball, like a soccer, straight um. onto my toes until my toes eventually broke. And what that did over and over, one, being like, that was ridiculous. That's not actually how you do this. But knowing that my dad believed in me enough to say, you just have to do something over and over, break your toes. You'll learn at the other end. You don't need, you can do this without breaking your toes. And I think just living every day with my parents um, telling me and showing me and enforcing in me that, um, you know, anything is possible. um, If you, if you show up Um, I think that was a a big principle um, that I learned. It's, It's probably my, my biggest weakness and probably greatest strength with friends is, um, you know, if, if you don't show up when times are tough, um, I, I have no no place for you in my life. But, um, you know, if you show up, then then I'll, I'll show up for you in in the worst of times. And I think that came from them. Um, and I think just that principle of learning that if you just show up, um, you'll find a way to break through. There's no risk too big. There's no too many broken toes. Um, you know, there's no there's not too many special needs. Yeah. Inabilities for us to communicate. There's no, there's no gap too large to bridge. um, You just keep showing up. And I think that that's really critical principle for anyone to succeed in entrepreneurship.
0: So this is really the, the fascinating part of entrepreneurs. So what I'm hearing from you is the fact that you show up is more important than anything else. And of course, not being afraid of risks and what may be constantly, you'll figure it out, you just keep trying. And that's what's driving you pushing the envelope because you are in technology space, you are in Amazon space, things are constantly changing and you never know what's around the corner, except that you know you're gonna show up. And that's what gives you the thrill. And that's what is driving you to do what you're doing and which only drives you to get better and better right
1: yeah absolutely and i think there i think i think um all humans create this loop of like you know we we all want to be the best version of ourselves that that we can imagine and oftentimes it comes back to living up to the morals that were instilled on us whether it's our parents if we're lucky enough to have that or or coaches or teachers or or whoever it was that that gave us principles or morals Um, and so i think you know in entrepreneurship i'm i'm granted the opportunity to live up to that principle that my, you know, my parents couldn't give me everything and they couldn't give me a lot of things that other kids get, but um, you know, they, they gave me something that that keeps giving. Um, and the more I live up to it, um, the more I make right their existence and my own. Um, and yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting loop. I think that exists.
0: Yeah. You know, your, your, what you just described reminds me of a story that, that, is a very dear story for me so you may remember there was a journalist called Tim Russert who was the host of Meet the know. Press on NBC he okay. was was he was very much respected everybody loved him no matter right left i mean these days there's nobody like him mm. uh, but he was very much respected and i i loved the guy i would watch uh, meet the press every sunday uh, it was it was uh, very enjoyable But such a humble guy, his father had three jobs. He was a janitor and he's from Buffalo, Mm -hmm. New York. And he went to college, University of Buffalo, became a lawyer. And anyway, the moral of the story is this. He decides that he wants to be an aide to Senator Patrick Moynihan, who was very much respected in the U.S. Senate. And Mm -hmm. so he applies for the job and he's a lawyer and he goes waiting for his interview. And, you know, these candidates are being interviewed. they from Harvard, Stanford, you know, Yale, you know, all these, Ivy League. And there he is, Tim sure. Russell. Poor old Tim Russell is from University of Buffalo. And uh, so Patrick Moynihan is watching this whole process, apparently. So the, the interviews are done. And he comes out of his office. and. He says, how do you think you did? And he says, not a chance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he says, why is that? And he says, well, they are all from Ivy League colleges, Princeton, Yale, whatever. So I just graduated from University of Buffalo. I'm, it's not really anything special. And when Moynihan hears this, he says, well, walk with me. So they go out, take a walk. He says, listen, these kids who went to these Ivy League colleges, sure, you know, they've got the degree. They probably don't know what it's like not to have things in life their parents have given them. Um, So what they learned and what they know, the knowledge they have, you can acquire. But your life experience and what you know, they will never learn. Mm. So do not put yourself down, college degree or not, Ivy League versus you know regular. Don't think about it. Some things cannot be acquired unless you live through it. So when you explained all this, and then you're thinking it's this is exactly what he said, you know, to, yeah. to us And then of course, Tim Russell became someone everybody loved and looked up to. So uh, you are exactly the same to me. And that obviously becomes your guiding principle in life. And frankly, the way I see it is you're still breaking your toes, kicking Mm. that uh, life uh, ball, uh, technology ball all over the place, and uh, delivering the success. So this is... Was great. I'm uh, very much touched by your story, Nader.
1: Thank you very much, Nick, and and thank you for such a um, such a kind story you shared to to link me to that. That that means a lot. I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for that. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I mean, it, it's uh, you know, it's your story. I just remembered, and he was uh, just look him up uh, if you want. Tim Russell it was such a great guy. And by the way, uh, I will. The, I. Uh, I like I said I used to re- watch him religiously, and one day I was at work, and my friends knew. And then I had one friend, and just a friend. She never called me at all during the day, mm-hmm. especially. And one day in the middle of the day, I get a phone call, and this friend of mine calling me, and she's uh, she. So she, I pick up the phone, and I said. What's up? Like first time ever, I get a call from her in my office. Mm. I said, what's up? Uh, Everything okay? She says, yeah, Tim Russell died. So Mm. apparently the guy died, a heart attack. And uh, it was was such a sad thing. From that day onwards, I have not watched Meet the Press ever. So it's not because, I mean, he was very good, but it was who he was that really was... Yeah, uh, the reason for me to stay with it, and then like I, I would mm. learn this first, but the kind of person, and also at work, outside work, and ironically, when he died, the whole Washington DC, you know, they they had a, 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 a their whole ceremony and everything uh, in church, and I never forget the TV, you know, there was live broadcast of his whole ceremony thing, and then in the end. Right at the end, everybody walking out of the church. And there was a rainbow over the church.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. What a wow. What a moment. What a waiting. Yeah. So wait that, that was
0: his story. I never forget that story he told. So anyway. So we are going to do a follow-up. So everybody listening, okay. uh, we, we're gonna you're gonna see us again, dive into these different areas. And this was a great conversation later. Thank you for being here.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Nick.
0: Thank you. And uh, this brings us to the end of another episode. And I'll see you on the next one. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to
1: subscribe, rate, and review the episode. And share it with someone you think would benefit from it, too.